following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In chapter nine, the party was summoned to speak with Marlock the Sheriff of Burke, and Eredin was introduced under a false name to the surprise of both Kagan and Gyrios. Marlock explained that Burke's up-and-comer status was being threatened by recent goblin raids and questioned the party about their recent experiences. As the Sheriff did not know where to find the goblin's base, Kagan cut a deal, trading the map he found for a tentative job offer as a guide. The rest of them signed on as well. The party was outfitted with some basic equipment and then headed to the marketplace to buy a few other necessities. Along the way, Eredin explained her subterfuge to the companions and came clean about her criminal past. Later, the party returned to the inn and had a most fortuitous run-in with a man that they had never met, but who'd been waiting for them. Chapter 10, Part 1, Day 10, Midnight, Party Status, Kagan, 6 out of 8 hit points, Umura, 5 out of 5 hit points, Kyrios, 4 out of 7 hit points, Eridine, 2 out of 4 hit points. Spells available, Umura has memorized Charm Person. Instead of sleeping off the effects of a couple of bottles of Zacian sour wine, Midnight found the companions huddled outside the door of the guest room closest to the stairs. Not a one of them had failed to detect the scent of embalming fluid that clung to the older man's clothes. After their run-in on the staircase, they'd all gone directly to the women's room to form a plan. Soon thereafter, some light intimidation from Kagan coaxed from Gurdon the room in which the bald-headed and well-dressed guest was staying. They took turns at the window, watching for his return, and a few hours later, Eredin announced that she saw him coming. Presently, Eredin and Umura were at either side of the door, with Kagan front and center, and Gyrios behind. The trick would be to get him to open the door a little, and then Kagan would shove the door hard. Once they got inside and had him trapped, they would tie him to the chair and ask him a few questions. Umura had her shoulder bag with the two vials of serum in it, She had every intention of pouring both of them down his throat, whether he cooperated or not. Kagan rapped lightly. 
Pardon, sir, said Umura. We're in dire need of help. Please, it's urgent. They waited. Eridine had her ear pressed to the wall. She flicked her eyes toward Kagan and shook her head. Kagan knocked again. Sir, please, she said more urgently. Wake up, there's danger. Umura winced at her poor choice of words. They waited. Again, nothing happened, and Eridine indicated that she heard no movement from within. They'd already discussed the possibility that this might happen. The man might be overcautious or a heavy sleeper. Either way, they were going in. Gurdon had not been persuaded to give them a key, although Kagan had tried for one, and so Plan B called for a little heavy-handedness. Kagan pulled back and shoulder-rushed the door. Kagan needs to roll a strength check to bash down this door. I'll say it's only a matter of time before he gets in, but if he can't get it done quickly, it might give the occupant time to react. Let's do a straight ability check versus strength. Kagan has a strength of 13, so he needs to get that or lower on a die 20. Here's the first try. A three. He knocks the door right off its hinges. Had Raffenfeld been behind it, he would have taken some damage and gone down hard. But when Kagan crashes in, the party finds the room empty. Impossible, said Girios. He'd been watching the hallway for the last hour since they heard this door close. From somewhere on the first floor came the sound of Gurdon bellowing out a string of obscenities the old man had not seemed capable of knowing. The party entered the room. Straight in front of them was the answer to the puzzle. The single window had its shutters flung wide. The room was empty of all else. No boots by the bed, no clothes hanging from a peg, no nothing. Umura was quickly at the bedside and had her hand on the mattress. Cold, she said. It's as if he knew we were coming, said Girios. But how can that be? Eridine asked him. Girios did not answer. He had no idea. It's just like back at the tower. There must have been a secret exit there, or he went up the chimney or something. Did anyone bother to check if that chimney was big enough for a prison to crawl up? Damn it, said Umura. We'll never catch him now. He could be anywhere. It's pitch black outside. He's gone. Well, that's true, began Girios. But at least now we know what he looks like. With nothing else to do, the party returned to their rooms. They didn't feel much like celebrating, so the wine went untouched. In the morning, Kagan went down to visit Gurdon. The old man was still beside himself and practically shook with anger. Kagan accepted a tongue lashing and handed over two gold coins for the damages, four times more than he needed to, which the innkeeper fairly snatched from him, remarking that they could take their business to the king in purse on the mountainside of town if they ever again needed a room. The party had hoped to stow some of their goods at the North End Inn while they were away, but given the circumstances, they wisely decided not to ask and packed everything into their backpacks, frowning against the unnecessary weight. They stood by the weathercock sign outside to await the other members of the expedition and to listen to their grumbling bellies. Gurdon had not offered them any breakfast. Before long, they saw the small troop approaching. There were six of them. In the lead was Captain Tor. They recognized his long hair and dark, hawkish features from the meeting the previous day. Right behind him came a pair of men-at-arms using their spears as walking staffs, and then a bowman in boiled leathers. Thurn was there too, bringing up the rear with another unfamiliar dwarf. 
This one had a voluminous bushy black beard and a topknot. A battle axe was slung diagonally across his back, the crescent single blade bobbing behind his head as he walked. At this point, I'm going to pause again and roll a reaction check to see how the group of guards takes to Kagan's party. Thurn and Captain Tor have already had their first reaction, and it was less than favorable, but for everyone else, this is a first-time meeting. As the party leader, Kagan's plus-one bonus will apply to the roll. A nine. After Kagan's bonus, that's a ten. That's a very positive result. Let's see how this will play out. Well met, said Kagan, holding up his hand in salutation. Seems a good day for a walk. Captain Tor, was it? Just call me Captain, replied the other man. Tor's for men I fought beside. <clears throat> he cleared his throat and continued. I have news you're welcome. We shan't be walking, at least not all the way. I've arranged for Alfred to give us a lift. He's the local wheelwright. He'll be along in a minute. Ho <laughs> ho! You didn't mention we'd be traveling with women, said one of the spearmen. He seemed barely 20 years old. He had wheat-colored hair that hung over his eyes. When he smiled, it showed a set of bad teeth. Well met, ladies. (laughs) He performed a comic bow. Umura and Aradine smiled back humorlessly. Shut up, Eiffelt, said Captain Tor. Eiffelt's a damn fool. Probably get us all killed. You've already met Thurn. And this? He motioned towards the second spearman, his mun. The archer, another great fool and equally able to get us all killed, is Riley. Riley the Roach, the archer corrected. Gods alone know why anyone would name themselves so, but if that's how you wish it, Riley the Roach. Riley the Roach appeared satisfied. Finally, this is Harl, brother to Thurn. Harl gave a decisive nod in their direction by way of greeting. It seemed these dwarves were no more talkative than Soli had been. In the distance, came the sound of hoofs, and then rumbling. And then a wagon pulled by a pair of scrawny horses crested the rise. Sitting high atop the front of the wagon sat a hooded man. He was holding the reins with one hand and had a pipe in the other. When the wagon pulled up beside them, they all climbed aboard and soon they were headed north, right back in the direction the companions had come just over a day before. Dramatis Personae, Captain Tor. Tor is a third-level human male fighter and captain of the guard in the township of Burke. He acts as the sheriff's right hand and commands an active force of 20 spearmen and 10 archers. Tor is 31 years old, but seems older. He has long, dark hair, prematurely streaked with gray. His thin nose, overbite, and small eyes lend his face an avian look. Tor is tall, at six foot two, and long-limbed. He weighs 190 pounds of lean muscle. Between his height and build, the reach of his sword arm exceeds most by six inches, a small difference that has nonetheless cost many a highwayman dearly. Tor's speech is husky and devoid of emotion. What little sense of humor he has is extremely dry. He's slow to enter into friendship. Perhaps this is because Captain Tor has seen more than most of violence and tragedy. It has certainly made him dour, hard to impress, and cautious. His caution does not extend to cowardice, however. Tor will be the last man to fly in the face of danger. He takes his duty as captain very seriously, and his loyalty to the sheriff is unwavering. In his early twenties, 
Tor capitalized on his natural talents and took work as a sword for hire. For seven years, he worked the South Road, serving merchants both individual and in caravan. He has fought brigands, as well as kobolds, goblins, and worse, and he bears the scars to prove it. It was after a particularly harrowing knoll attack that Tor stopped to compare his pay purse with the blood he spilled and wondered if there might not be a better way to earn a living. By this time, he knew many merchants and officials from Silmoral to Burke. A jeweler he had worked for a dozen times dropped his name in Sheriff Marlock's ear one day, and the timing was perfect. Marlock needed a man, and after a lengthy interview, hired Tor. To this day, Marlock considers it the best hire he has ever made. Four years have passed since the sheriff took him on. By virtue of his efficiency and dependability, the two things Marlock values most in a man, Tor has achieved his current rank of captain. In Burke, that's as high as a man can get without replacing the sheriff himself. Thern Stonecarver. Like most dwarves, Thern Stonecarver holds family, history, and honor above all else. Unlike most dwarves, he is curious about the other races and does not share the xenophobia that seems to afflict so many of his kind. He's lived among the humans now for over a year and finds what he takes to be their accelerated lifespans invigorating. Thern is 89 years old and has bright red hair that he adamantly refuses to trim. He wears it in a pair of braids that hang down either side of his head in the manner that he has seen some young human girls wearing theirs. The effect might have been comical if it were not for the dwarf's stern and craggy visage and flat gaze. Thern's beard is likewise uncut and hangs well past his belt almost to his knees. At just over five feet in height, Thern is tall for a dwarf. He's 175 pounds of muscle, thick and dense. He can swing his mace with incredible speed and force. Over a dozen goblins have fallen before it and half as many humans, the latter a fact that Thern keeps to himself while living among them. Thern now spends more time with the men of Burke than he does at his home in the High Forge, where he has a loving wife and five children. Although he's a warrior through and through, his actual job in town is more nuanced. He was sent to live among the men in a mixed capacity, part diplomat, part detective, and part watchdog. Recently, he's learned of the fate of four of his people. He knows each one, Soli, Mulgi, Nofer, and Dasan. They'd been part of the recent and growing trade between dwarves and men. Two of the bodies were found on the road between Burke and the Skundra Moir some two weeks ago, along with their dead pony and empty cart. Poorly fletched arrows, clearly goblin-made, stuck out of the wagon wall like a pincushion. This was not the first time the dwarves had been ambushed by goblins. Thern had seen it many times. But recently the attacks had been coming more often, and the absence of two of the dwarves' bodies suggested that they were taken captive. Honor demanded that they be searched for, with or without help from the men of Burke. But until Kagan and his band showed up, there'd be no way to begin. rookie dungeon master, lost in the vast and seemingly endless world of Dungeons and Dragons? Or perhaps you're a veteran game master with renowned TPK abilities, but you wish someone would just appreciate all the finer details you put into the game. Uh, yeah dude, we hear ya. Ignorant Dreams of a Rookie Dungeon Master is not just an advice show filled to the brim with tons of great information on how to become a better DM. No! It's a community for the self-loathing, narcissistic, and delusion-filled figures behind the screen who keep this whole game a-going. 
So, next time you find yourself with a big question about dungeon mastering, or you need an attaboy from people just as crazy as you, tune in to Ignorant Dreams of a Rookie Dungeon Master anywhere you get your podcast fix. Between the Lines Our story finds itself with a surplus of characters today. With so many NPCs, I've determined their basic stats off mic, and I've decided that a brief rundown of the scouting expedition is all we need for now. If I need to go into further detail later, I'll do so. For now, I'm going to keep it to a minimum. Name, level, hit points, armor class, and weapon type. Before we get started, I'll say this. The dice were not especially kind. It seems that fortune favors the bad in the world of Marith. Come to think of it, that's totally in keeping with every D&D game I think I ever played. But I digress. Back to these NPCs. Captain Tor, with dark hair and sharp features, is a third-level fighter. He has a maximum of 17 hit points. With his chain mail and shield, he has an armor class of four. He uses a longsword in battle. Like most of the NPCs, he'll have a small bonus to his prime requisite ability, strength. Thern Stonecarver, with flame-red hair and long beard, is also a level three fighter. He has a maximum of 19 hit points. He wields a mace. He wears well-made plate mail and carries a shield, giving him a fantastic armor class of two. Harl Stonecarver, brother to Thern, has a bushy black beard and a topknot. He is a level one fighter. He has just five hit points. His plate mail gives him an armor class of three. He carries a battle axe, which he wields two-handed. Eiffelt and Mun have identical stats. Both carry spears, use chainmail and shield for an AC of four, and have five hit points. Lastly, we have Riley, or Riley the Roach, as he prefers to be called. He has seven hit points, wears leather armor for an armor class of eight, improved to seven by a dexterity bonus in lieu of a strength bonus. He carries a short bow and a quiver with 20 arrows. That about does it for the NPCs. If circumstances should have any of them make the transition over to player character, I'll increase their hit points and roll their stats. Captain Tor and Thern, being of higher level than our main characters, cannot join the party as PCs. That seems somehow unfair to me. The others potentially could, however. Who knows what the dice will decide. Part 2. Day 11, 12, 13, and 14. By day 14, everybody is at maximum hit points. Their totals are as follows. Kagan, 8 out of 8. Umura, 5 out of 5. Gyrios, 7 out of 7. Eridine, 4 out of 4. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person. The first day was by far the easiest. Alfin drove them steadily north, chatting occasionally at Captain Tor, who would nod or mumble a reply in his predictable monotone. Alfin, used to the man's poor company, continued unbothered. Kagan thought he must have a never-ending supply of tobacco, for the man smoked without ever stopping. The pipe smelled good. The sun came out and the men were cheerful, gossiping back and forth and boasting about some card game won or some brawl broken up. 
Riley the Roach, it occurred to Kagan, had the oddest way of socializing. The young man seemed to invite ridicule and then complained loudly when it inevitably came. The men would roar with laughter and Riley would seem somehow satisfied, as if their amusement was food to him, as if he cared not how he was one of the boys so long as he was one. Kagan had never met anyone quite like that before. The women mostly kept their own counsel. Gyrios's attempts to socialize fell flat. The men knew what he was and were afraid of being sermonized to. As for Kagan, he fit right in. He'd never had a problem getting along with other men. In the late afternoon, Umura pointed out a fork in the road ahead. That's the road to Wilmington, then east from there to Zaysha, Alphen offered. I know, said Umura, and then, stay sharp, this is where I was captured. Everyone perked up, but the wagon rolled on, and the birds kept singing, and the sun kept shining, and Alphen kept smoking. Nothing happened, and soon the fork was well behind them. As the sun began to dip, Tor turned to Kagan to ask if he recognized anything. You're taken somewhere along here, yeah? Before the crossroad? Kagan confirmed that this was true and handed the map to Tor. I don't think I can point out the exact place where the goblins attacked us, he said. They came out of nowhere. Everything happened so fast and I wasn't really paying attention. I know it was south of the crossroads. I know this road as well as any man. We'll be at the crossroads within two hours. How long before we tell Alfin to stop the wagon? Half an hour, maybe a little more, guessed Kagan. I can't be sure. Close enough is good enough said Tor, turning back to give instructions to the driver. Alfin blew out a cloud of smoke and said, Yeah, that's good to me. My ass is starting to hurt. They stopped before dark and unloaded some supplies from the wagon. The men went into the trees to collect kindling and dry firewood. Before long, they returned with enough to keep a campfire going all night. A fire was built. Fresh mutton was produced from an oilskin sack along with vegetables to roast and before long, dinner was served. After the meal, Riley produced a tin flute and played with surprising skill and grace. The others clearly knew and enjoyed the tune. The day had been so pleasant, it had almost been enough to make Kagan forget that they were heading back into the Kingswood. At night, Captain Tor assigned two man watches and everyone took to their bedrolls. The women were graciously given the first duty. They didn't protest, but took the easiest shift gratefully. One by one, the soldiers fell asleep, under the stars. Kagan was woken before dawn to take his shift at watch. His duty was shared with the captain, so conversation was difficult, and Kagan soon gave up, which she assumed was the other man's preference. The captain looked like he hadn't slept much. When morning came, they roused the others, took more gear from the wagon, carefully wrapped and stowed the leftover lamb, and sent Alfin on his way. Alfin waved to them wordlessly as he went, dragging a white plume of smoke behind him. Grab your packs. Let's go, said Tor. I need to roll for wandering encounters for these first two days and nights. As before, I'll roll a die six each day. On a one or a two, an encounter will take place. 
I'll use the same table I did when the party was on their way out of the Kingswood. That table can be found on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Here are the rules. A five. And another five. No encounters at all. The ten of them cut west into the Kingswood, moving more or less in a straight line for that day and the next. They lit no fires at night, but kept up their two-man watches. On the morning of the fourth day, the group found themselves roughly in the part of the wood marked by an X on the goblin's map. What now, Captain? asked Eiffelt, pushing his hair out of his eyes. What now? Kagan there was a trapper. I bet he knows what now. Eiffelt looked to the fighter. We look for Spoor, said Kagan. Exactly. Move carefully, keep a sharp eye. Keep your mouth shut unless you find something. Per the captain's instructions, the ten fanned well apart and slowed their progress to a crawl. Hours passed this way, with each of the group feeling oddly alone and exposed. In the afternoon, someone gave a whistle. The line contracted toward the sound, and Kagan soon found himself standing beside Eiffelt once again. The man was pointing at a large shape on the forest floor. What the hell is that thing? said Kagan. The other members of the group were there now, and they all stared wordlessly at what Eiffel had stumbled upon. Lying on the forest floor was the body of a massive wolf. It was the size of a small horse. It had been decomposing for days, and white maggots wriggled here and there in its light gray fur. One of the hind legs was broken and cocked backwards at an unnatural angle. The flank had been punctured several times in a tight cluster. Someone, or something, had cut off and removed the beast's head. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps a great deal. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at ManticoreTale. I'm also on Instagram, or you can just send me an email at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Special thanks this episode goes to Jake Hendricks for contributing the voice of Eiffelt. Thanks, Jake. It's great to have another voice in the mix. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at SavePodcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn. 